Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, and as he said... Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, You must say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this come to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of age. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it's nearly Advent. Advent starts next Sunday. I mean, that's a really exciting time for me. I love Advent. I love Christmas. I love everything that that season brings, except for the cold weather. We could do without that. But otherwise, everything's pretty good. Um, we're going to be decorating this afternoon here, uh, later this week at Fairview. Uh, churches around our community and our community itself uh, will be decorating. I'm not sure when they do it, but, you know, there's always lights on Main Street. And, and it's really exciting to get ready for that anticipation. And today we're wrapping up our sermon series. We've been, in the, for the last six weeks, we've been in a sermon series, the last seven weeks, we've been in a sermon series that we've called We Believe, and we've been breaking down some of those foundational beliefs of Christianity as expressed in the Apostles' Creed. That uh, foundational document that has existed for hundreds of years, that is a bit and piece of each apostle telling us what are the most essential components of our beliefs as Christians. Today we're finalizing it, we're, we're wrapping it up with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Today is also Christ the King Sunday, which uh, is such a new thing on the liturgical calendar, it's actually newer than this church. This church has existed, uh, not in this location, but it has existed uh, longer than Christ the King Sunday has existed. 
Uh, it formed in 1925, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the sermon. Uh, but since 1925, the Christian church has celebrated a special day, the Sunday before Advent, to talk about Christ the King. And again, we're going to talk about what that means. But it's really <clears throat> incredibly important this year and this Sunday uh, to reflect on what it means that Christ is our King and kind of to juxtapose that with what it means to reflect on the resurrection of the body. Our scripture is a familiar passage from Matthew 28, recounting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we affirm that Jesus Christ conquered death at his own resurrection, and that the power of God is so great that even death can't stop God. Christ's promise for atonement for sin and leading to everlasting life is something that we can believe as Christians, because Christ himself demonstrated power even over death. This is an incredible story. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the crux of what it is to be a Christian. It's the crux of what we believe. And as we're heading into Advent, as we're heading into decorations and all the other things, I think it's really an important time to reflect on the resurrection. Like I said, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be singing two, uh, two of my favorite Easter hymns this morning, reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there really is no better time other than Easter, of course, to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ than in the week leading up to Advent. Um, we, uh, we prepare our, our way. Advent means preparing a way. We're preparing our way to Christmas. We're preparing our way to reflecting on the birth of Jesus Christ, the fact that he was born into a country that, that didn't want him, into persecution and, and needing to flee. And we reflect on those stories, but we, none of them matter without the resurrection. So we're going to start there. We're going to start at the end, and then next week we'll start working our way from the beginning. Christ died before the Sabbath began. Uh, the uh, Roman soldiers probably didn't care very much, but they didn't want to upset the, the Jews, so uh, he died before the Sabbath began. I want to put us in that mindset for a minute of what it must have been like for these people who went to, uh, to that tomb. So uh, Mary and the other Mary, according to Matthew, uh, come uh, the first day of the week, Sunday. They, they, they wait for Sabbath. Sabbath begins at sundown. Uh, in the Jewish calendar, in that time period, uh, days begin at the end of the day, not in, like in the middle of the night like it does for us today. They begin at the end of the day. So uh, to put it in the context of today, you know, around 6 o'clock when the sun's down, that would be Monday uh, in, in that time period. So they, uh, the Sabbath begins Friday night, and of course they can't do anything about the body Friday night or Saturday. They can't do anything about the body of Christ until the Sabbath is over. It would be against the law. Um, so they wait for the Sabbath to be over. Of course, that's nighttime, so they kind of wait through the night. And then the very next morning, Sunday morning, they get up and they head out. Uh, the Gospels have different accounts, but they're pretty similar. It happened very early in the morning, the wee hours of the morning. They get up, they go to Jesus' body, and they don't find it there. They find the tomb empty, and they find an angel, and they, they tell this miraculous story. And, and I can imagine what that must feel like for them. Uh, see, what you have to understand is that uh, for, the, for the Jews of the time period, they didn't have the image the universe that God has, or even the image of history that we have. For us today, it seems kind of silly that, uh, that these early leaders of the church, that these apostles, these disciples, that Mary, uh, really struggled with the concept that Jesus Christ was coming back. But they did. They really struggled with it. They thought that Jesus' role on earth was to end Roman oppression, right? They saw the most significant challenge to their faith was an anti-Semitic former foreign government that was ruling over their country and only just allowing them to practice their own faith. And so they thought that end of Roman rule over Jerusalem was going to be uh, what Christ had come for. But that's not quite what Christ came for. Of course, we know that Christ came for uh, something much more important than any government or any Caesar. Christ came to know that he was the ruler of our hearts, to know that we could be connected to God in a very special way. 
But they didn't quite understand that yet. So finding the tomb empty must have been the most incredible thing in the world because even though they knew it was going to happen, they didn't know it was going to happen. In other words, even though Jesus told them it was going to happen, none of them quite understood what that meant. So they come to the tomb, and it's empty. His body isn't there. I'm not a doctor. Most of you know that, I think. Um, and, uh, and the first century medicine wasn't very advanced, although they did have surgery. It had recently been invented. Um, but I don't think you need to be a doctor or even have more mind than first century medicine to know that when somebody stops bleeding, breathing, and their heart stops beating, they're not alive anymore. And that's exactly the condition they found Jesus in at the cross. Three days later, he wasn't in the tomb. He was gone. That's not something you're supposed to be able to come back from. That's not something that's supposed to be able to be fixed. But Jesus shows power even over death. Uh, Some Christians even today, though, challenge the concept of the resurrection. It's so hard to believe. It's so unbelievable and implausible and unlikely that some Christians even today challenge the idea of the resurrection. The most common challenge is the idea of legend. There's about 70 years between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and when it was written down. Again, uh, early Christians were very short-sighted, just like modern Christians, uh, not understanding how much farther God's plan was. Paul genuinely believed that Jesus Christ was coming back in his lifetime. When Jesus said, I'm coming back, the disciples said, all right, so like a week or two, I mean, you know, should we, should we worry about our house payment? You know, I mean, you know, what, what is it that's going on here? Uh, so <clears throat> the disciples um, didn't have a concept that 2,000 years later we'd still be talking about it. So it took them a while to finally decide to write these things down. There was still oral tradition, though. They were still sharing the gospel with people. They were still sharing the stories of Jesus and the disciples with everyone who would hear. Christianity grew by leaps and bounds. And, then, and about 70 years later, uh, around 100 AD or so, uh, people began to write down the stories of Jesus. Of course, uh, that's kind of like uh, looking back at World War II, talking to our ancestors who served in the war, talking to folks who experienced the war in other ways, such as those who were back home and remember seeing the news reports, but having no books written about it, having no letters written about it, having no other documentation about the war other than people's stories, and then writing them down. The problem with that challenge, though, is that it completely ignores so much of Scripture. It ignores so much of the essential components of what it means to be a Christian and the reality that the Holy Spirit was present with those who wrote it. It's true that the four Gospels don't agree on all the details, and that's one reality of reading Scripture, is that uh, one Gospel suggests there were several angels, one says there was one, uh, one Gospel says it was dark, another one says it was light out. Uh, they don't quite agree on the details, but the details aren't the part that's supposed to be life-changing. The part that's supposed to be life-changing is the part that they can all agree on, and that's that the tomb was empty and the stone had been rolled away. I believe that that 70-year gap accounts for the inconsistencies, but that the Bible was never meant to be read uh, in such a way that those inconsistencies would just unravel it. Uh, it could contain irregularities. It's allowed to contain inconsistencies. Biblical contradictions don't cancel each other out, um, like critics of the Bible claim. They exist as clues to a broader truth. The essence of the, of the gospel is not how many angels showed up or what time of day it was. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus Christ wasn't there and that he had been risen. The gospel authors uh, remember very clearly what happened on that day. And that's the story that we tell. It's the greatest story ever told. Sometimes people try to explain it away to try and make it make sense. There's a a contingency among other faith groups and even among some Christians that Jesus uh, had been replaced, that they had bribed somebody and gotten somebody else to get on the cross instead of Jesus. So he was still alive the whole time. 
Though again, it kind of ignores so much scripture. It ignores the fact that the disciples and Mary and, and others, uh, only a couple, but a couple, had made it to the cross and knew their master on the cross. It ignores him appearing in the upper room with his scars. It ignores a lot, really, in an attempt to explain what shouldn't need explaining. The reality is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is supposed to be implausible. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to not make a lot of sense. But it is something that we as Christians affirm as a part of our beliefs. Christ's death and resurrection are central and pivotal. And affirming these concepts is difficult, but that's kind of the point. Our life here on earth is a gift from God. Are we reflecting this morning on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? But part of reflecting on the resurrection is reflecting on our own lives here. Our life is indeed a gift from God. It's meant to be lived. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about life being you know, a test or temporary or something that's meaningless compared to heaven, but it's not quite the way it works. God intended for us to live our lives. God intended for us to be citizens of this world. And God intended for us to have happiness and peace here. That's why, in fact, God gave us so many uh, commandments about loving other people and caring for other people. I can imagine that few things break God's heart more than to look down at his creation and see people who are oppressed, who are victims of violence, who are victims of persecution, and who aren't able to live their lives, victims of poverty, victims of disease, and and they aren't able to live their lives the way that God would like for them to have lived. They aren't able to live their lives the way God had created them to live it. We're called as Christians to do everything that we can, however we feel called, to make sure that others can live their lives the way that God intended for them to live them. It's a tall order, but it's one that we've been called to do. So that's where Christ the King Sunday comes in. I I told you I was going to talk about that. That's where that comes in. 1925, Pope Pius XI uh, began to identify an issue in the world, especially in Europe. And that issue was individualism and hardcore statism hardcore kind of xenophobia and and very hardcore nationalism that was happening, especially in Europe, after World War I. Really, there were two sides to World War I in 1925, right? In 1925, you'd either been blown up by somebody or you were the one who was doing the blowing up. And if you were the one who was doing the blowing up, chances are that every other country had something pointed at you and was controlling every moment of your well-being in life. Many people attribute, for example, the willingness of Germany to enter into aggression in World War II again, even after their loss in World War I, to a desperation because of the tremendous uh, restrictions that were placed on them uh, by the United States and others. And I'm not a historian, so I won't argue one way or another on that, but uh, that's certainly a perspective that's shared. The idea that Germany um, in World War II, part of the reason the Nazi Party was able to create so much fear and create so much authority, was simply by telling people that these reparations are unfair, that bankrupting the country and not allowing us to have commerce or do anything is unfair because of the actions of our ancestors. So we needed to do what our ancestors did to fight back. I don't get it either, but that, it worked for them. Um, and what happened was instilling fear. Um, if you want something that will just give you chills, um, reading about the trials that happened after World War II with these Nazi leaders and some of their messages, some of their ideologies. Um, Goering, for example, one of, one of, uh, one of whom um, was uh, one of Hitler's top generals, is quoted as saying, Uh, it's easy to control people. It's easy to control a country. And this is how you do it, he says. He says, what you do is you convince them they're under attack um, from within somewhere. And then you convince them that you have to take out these people who are attacking you. So they have to give up their rights, they have to give up other people's rights, and they have to give up everything to allow that country to stop the attacking force. 
People ask how the Nazis could ever get the kind of power that they had in a democratic country. Well, the reality is they convinced them that they were under attack. They convinced people they were under attack from the Jews. They convinced people that they were under attack from other groups. Any group that they could find that people could become angry against, they convinced them that they were under attack, and thus you need to give us more authority so that we can protect you from those who are attacking us. In 1925, decades before this happened, uh, the Christian church was beginning to recognize this. People around the world were beginning to recognize this, that this was starting, that this idea was starting. This idea that nothing matters more than our people and our country, and nothing matters more, not even God, uh, than vanquishing our enemies. This fear that was starting out in the the world was something that the Christian church began to identify as a problem. Uh, Pope Pius also recognized that national leaders were also looking to God less and looking to politics more, uh, looking less to their faith and looking more to what could get them uh, more of what they want in the world. So Christ the King Sunday began, and it began as a time for Christians right before Advent, it's always the Sunday before Advent, to reflect on Christ the King, whose authority reigns higher than any government or any other, other worldly thing. Christ the King also exists to help us reflect <clears throat> on what it means to be a Christian in a world that is divided, in a world that is uh, polarized, that we as Christians have one unique leader. Despite who we might vote for, where we might live, or what we might look like, we all have the same king. I think that Christians in the world could gain a lot from understanding that Christ is the king of our lives and the king of our hearts. Um, I think one of the greatest things I get to be is an American, right? It's pretty cool to be an American. I, I hope you all agree with that. Uh, if not, that's all right. But, but I think it's one of the coolest things to get to be because it means that I have certain freedoms that a lot of people don't get to have. I'm proud of people, including in this congregation, who have uh, served uh, the armed forces and otherwise to help protect that and to preserve that. My own younger brother, for example, is, uh, is in the military, and, and uh, you know, he's very adamant that he knows what he got himself into. Uh, He knows why he's doing this, and he knows what it is that he's defending and protecting should he be asked to do so again. One of the most important parts for me uh, of America is the freedom of religion, because I really genuinely believe that we can't genuinely say yes to God unless an option is there to say no. If we tell people that they must believe in God, or we tell people they must pray, or they must worship, or they must go to church, what happens is... Uh, you know, the church can say these things, but when, when the government says these things, what happens is we can't really encourage people to make a genuine choice for God because they don't have the choice to say no. As tough as that sounds, we can't say yes to God unless no is one of the options on the table. And what God wants from us is to choose him freely. So it's incredible to belong to a country that believes that. But even so, I'm a Christian first, and that always, always comes first. It's one of the toughest things for us to do is to to love something, but also love something else just a bit more, or even a lot more. One of the things I hate to hear is comparing need, as if God compares need, or comparing people as if God compares people. Uh, For example, we hear it all the time, why are we buying toys for orphans when there's people who who don't have any food to eat? Why are we buying food to eat for these people when there's people over here who need it? You know, it's this constant struggle of us versus them and them versus us and, and our people versus their people. But I really think that for Christians who understand that Christ is our king, there's only our people. There's only the people of God who, who God loves and calls us to love. Now, the reality is we're all going to be called to do different things for different people in different ways. But none of us are called to criticize the way others are serving. I hate to hear that because 
uh, often it's not a solution, it's just identifying a problem, right? One of the biggest challenges, I think, in humanity is that we're really good at identifying problems and not particularly good at identifying solutions. Uh, a simpler way of saying that is if you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? Uh, I think my mom told me that when I was a kid, and I'm slowly learning why that's important. Um, and in our lives, we're going to be called in different ways. Some are going to be called to serve in far-off countries. Some are going to be called to serve in their hometown. But we're going to be called to serve by God, to serve people who don't have the opportunity at life that they deserve. And that's what God is calling us to do. Christ the King recognizes that Christ is the same King for us as those who aren't where we are, as, and including those where we are. So those in our community, those in our neighboring communities, those around the world, all serve and are called to serve the same Christ. Christ the King also questioned individualism. And, and what I mean by that is the idea that, that me, as a human being, I don't need God anymore. I don't need the church anymore. I don't need anything anymore because I'm smart enough to figure it out on my own. Uh, we think about that being kind of more modern, but even in 1925, the church was addressing that. People who were rejecting faith simply because they really felt like they've got it all under control on their own. And isn't it the truth that sometimes as Christians, we pray to God when things are bad, we kind of forget to reflect on God when things aren't going the way they're supposed to. Um, we reflect, sometimes, we, sometimes it's the other way around. We reflect on God when things are good, and we kind of forget that God is still good even when things aren't great. Christ the King kind of challenges, and it's one of the, one of the four tenets of Christ the King uh, in that papal decree is challenging individualism, challenging the idea that we as human beings are somehow so great and so perfect that we don't need our families and our communities and our churches and, most importantly, God to get through this life. As we reflect on who Christ the King is throughout Advent, this is the reason it starts before Advent. And what I'm hoping is that this will put us in the mindset, as we kind of reflect on the Apostles' Creed, where we're finishing it up, that we reflect on that resurrection. And think about what that means to be a child of the resurrection. At the end of Matthew, and it's, and it's no mistake that Matthew chooses to end the story of the resurrection with God's commandment to go out and to serve, right? To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's Christ's greatest commandment. That's the Great Commission, right? That's what we're sent to do. That's your job description. Matthew, um, this passage in Matthew 28 is your job description as a Christian. 28:19. Go, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This comes after the resurrection because we need to reflect on being children of the resurrection. One thing we share with everybody in the world, whether they like us or they don't like us, whether they're enemies or friends, whether they're allies, whether they're members of our own country, whether they're members of a country we can't pronounce and have never heard of before, we share the fact that they are children of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that Christ wants them to know the message of grace that he's offered to them. So as we head into Advent, my prayer for us, this is my prayer, is, and I hope that you'll pray it with me, I hope that you'll pray for me, <clears throat> is that we would recognize who it is that's in charge of all this, who it is that we're celebrating, who it is that we're preparing for heading into Christmas, who it is that we're expecting to be a part of our world and a part of our hearts, that Christ is our King, the one who's in charge of our hearts and whose authority is greater than any idea, than any government, than anything else that could exist in this world that isn't Jesus. Amen.